Let me start this morning with a quick question. How do you feel when I say the phrase, God sees you? Not that he knows you're here this morning. Hi, welcome to Crestwood. Glad you're here. Check. No. Right now, God is here. His spirit is here. And he sees into your heart and he knows every secret. How does that make you feel? Creepy. (laughs) I like that. Do your palms get sweaty? Are you anxious? Do you feel relieved? How do you feel? Why do I ask this question? Well, I believe that how you answer that question gives a slight indication to how you view God. And that is incredibly important for how you live the Christian life. Let me give you an example. When I was growing up, I was raised in a conservative, fundamental Christian home. And what I mean by that is that we were King James only. We wore suit and tie every Sunday. We had a rule for every part of life kind of Christianity. And if you didn't follow the rules, it was because you were worldly. The world was going to hell because they watched TV, that kind of Christianity. And as a result, you see, now you know how messed up I am, right? I had a, as a result, I had a skewed vision of who God was. I had a vision that God was angry with me, that nothing I could do could ever please God because all my righteousness was nothing but filthy rags. I looked up there and I saw a God who was in a suit and tie, holding his pen and paper, taking notes. And he was writing down everything I thought, said, or did, just looking for a reason to throw me into hell. I didn't believe that God really loved me, that he was for me. And that changed the way I lived. If you had asked me that question when I was a teenager, what do I feel when God sees you? (laughs) I would have lied awake all night in a cold sweat, you know, going, what if I die tomorrow? What if, what if a car comes across and hits me? What if the rapture happens? You know, those kinds of things. You know, there's a lot of end time stuff going on, Y2K, all that freaked me out. And so I was, Lord Jesus, if I'm not really saved, would you please save me? I don't know how many times that scenario worked its way out in my teenage years. Now, by this time, you're going, man, he needs therapy. <laughs> I probably did. Or it just may have been normal teenage hormones doing weird things. I don't know. But I had a skewed vision of God. And it wasn't until my later teenage years that God broke through to my heart and he gave me a vision of his life-changing love. That I realized he was for me, that he loved me and he wanted to save me. And it changed my life. It's a journey that he still has me on. You see, how you view God is incredibly important to the Christian life. If you have your Bibles this morning, take your Bibles, turn to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, chapter 1. Why the book of Jonah? Well, Jonah is a prophetic book. In fact, you may need your index to find it. Thank God for smartphones. I don't even look things up anymore. I'm just like, J-O-N, you know, (laughs) there I am. Thank God for smartphones. So as you're turning there, what makes Jonah different? Well, a lot of times in the Old Testament prophetic books, Those books were about a message that God gave the prophet for the people. What makes Jonah different is that God is actually giving a message to the prophet. You see, Jonah had a wrong view of who God was. And God was going to take Jonah on a journey. He was going to break through in Jonah's life and give him a radical vision of his life-changing love. 
So I encourage you, as we take this journey over the four sermons that this series comprises, put yourself in Jonah's shoes. Walk in his steps. Learn what he learns. Let me give you some background. Jonah lived in the 700s B.C., okay? He lived in the nation of um, uh, Israel. Now, at that time, God's people were split into two factions, the Baptist and the Methodist. I'm, I'm sorry, well, well, wrong part of history. Nothing never changes, does it? So the, the, the kingdom to the north was called Israel, and its capital was Samaria. The kingdom to the south was named Judah, and its capital was Jerusalem. Jonah was a prophet in Israel. Now, Israel was rich, prosperous, sophisticated. Judah, not so much. And primarily because Israel, well, they had better agricultural lands. They also had an international highway that ran right past the capital city of Samaria. So you had trade, commerce, exchange of ideas, etc. But all was not well in Jonah's world. Far to the east, there was a darkness growing. The evil kingdom of Assyria was gaining wealth, power, building armies. Their armies would swallow up whole villages, and they were coming west. And depending on when this story takes place, it's possible they had already destroyed the city of Damascus to the north, and they were literally, the armies of Assyria with its capital city, Nineveh, was already camped out on the borders of Israel, waiting to pounce. And that's where our story begins to take place. There was a time of national threat, fear was in the air, and that's not so much unlike the fears that we experience today. This year, we've seen more than our share of violence. The, 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 the trouble that's happening over in the Middle East, it's spilled over into Africa, spilled over into Europe. And amongst the, the media and the news that I hear, there's lots of talk about how do we keep that from happening here? There's already been attacks on our soil. They've been small, localized. But we can't help but wonder, what's next? And so there's talks about closing the border, screening immigrants, all that. I'm trying to give you a sense of what Jonah may have been going through when God came to him for this message. Let's look in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that is the capital of Assyria. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So Jonah said, sure, I'll be glad to. I'll go tell them what's what. No. Verse 3, what does Jonah do? But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Where in the world is Tarshish? Well, it's modern day Spain. Okay, so let me put this on a map for you. If I'm Jonah in Israel, over here is Nineveh. Over here is is Tarshish. He's running the opposite way. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's do a quick refresher. Who is Jonah? He's a prophet. What does a prophet do? He speaks for God. Jonah's not a very good prophet, is he? (laughs) I don't know what was going on in Jonah's head, but it might have been something like this. God, 
You are asking too much this time. God, you've crossed the line. God, you don't expect me to leave my family, my friends, my job, my security, and travel 500 miles across enemy territory into the heart of these terrorists and tell them about you. Surely. Now, God would never ask us to do anything crazy, right? I mean, how crazy does building an ark sound when there's never been such a thing as rain? Now, in Jonah's defense, what God was asking him to do wasn't just inconvenient. It was suicide, okay? The Ninevites, they were brutal. They were brutal people. As a form of psychological warfare, they would chop off the lips of their enemies. They would skin them alive and and hang their body parts as artwork in their home. These were barbarians, What God was asking Jonah to do was suicide. Let me give you an illustration. This is what it's like. Let's just say that this morning as I'm preaching, the Holy Spirit comes and he whispers in your ear and he says, I want you to hop on the next plane tomorrow, fly over to the Middle East, walk across the border into Iraq, straight into ISIS territory and preach to them. What would you do? If I were to be honest, if God told me that this morning, I would probably do exactly what Jonah did. I I would. And I would probably spiritualize it. Well, God's called me to a great ministry here, you know, that kind of, oh, that's not God. That's got to be a demon or something. Or that's my pizza I had last night, right? Remember, I have have problems from my teenage years. I'm still trying to work out about God, right? I'd make up some kind of excuse, and I wouldn't go. So we got to be careful about judging Jonah too much here. Jonah wasn't a bad guy. He had been a faithful prophet of God for many years, but in his heart, he said, God, you're just asking me too much. And that brings me to a question this morning. Is there a line that we have drawn in our hearts somewhere deep down? If we were to be honest, if God asked us to cross that line, we would say, God, you're asking too much. I mean, God, I know you've asked me to love my spouse unconditionally, but you don't know what I have to live with. God, I know you want me to forgive, but not that person. God, I know you want me to be a person of integrity, but if I tell the truth about my job, I'll lose my job. God, you're asking too much. This reminds me of the story of Abraham in the Old Testament. God came to Abraham, and he asked a question. He said, Abraham, do you love your son more than you love me? What if I asked you to sacrifice him? And Abraham's faith passed the test. Jonah, not so much. Jonah, he ran. And that brings us smack dab into a reality that you need to remember this morning. Every one of us in this room We are either running towards God or we're running away from God. Every word, every thought, every action, every attitude, it's either going towards God for the glory of God or we're running from God. And that includes a godly prophet. You see, Jonah was no stranger to doing godly stuff. He was used to telling people about how bad they were. He was used to pointing the finger and telling them what God had to say to them But God was taking that finger and bringing it right back to Jonah's heart because he wanted to see, Jonah, what's happening down here? And Jonah couldn't take it. He ran. You know, it's ironic that Jesus, 
Some of the harshest words that he used was for godly people, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Jewish leaders. You see, the Pharisees, they were masters at doing godly stuff. But here's the truth. Doing godly stuff doesn't necessarily make you godly. Doing godly stuff can be a mask covering up what's really going down in your heart. You see, our hearts can remain unchanged. Our hearts can remain cold towards God. We can do godly stuff, but we ignore the fact that deep down we're really prideful, that we care a lot about what people think about us. And whenever people disagree with us, especially in church, we we fume. And that, that venom sometimes spills out in gossip and we critique others. We build our own little circles here at church and we care more about our group and our circle more than what's happening in other circles. And rarely will we sometimes invite people to come join our circle. But we can still do all the godly stuff. We can still sing in the choir or lead the choir. Hello. (laughs) We can teach. We can serve. We can show up. We can give money in the offering plate. Now, I'm going to be gut honest here, okay? This is confession time for me. If I'm to be honest, sometimes I realize that I fear the same things as people outside the church. And I crave the same things as people outside the church. My attitude is sometimes the same as those outside the church. And we can still do godly stuff all the while. Are we blind to areas that we've made off limits to God? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, he says, The kingdom of God consists of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those are inward heart attitudes. Those are not programs. If we're as a church, as Crestwood is going to push forward into everything God has for us, we have to realize that changing a program or fixing a program is not going to fix us. You see, it's not about what we do so much as who we are. So who are we deep down when the mask is taken off? Either we're running towards God or we're running away from God. God asked Jonah to do something incredibly hard. What is God asking you to do this morning? Jonah ran. And that brings us to another interesting question. What does God do when we run from him? Does he give up? Does he say, well, I tried, next prophet? No. Get your pencil, write this down. This is the point of the entire chapter. When we run from God, God runs after us. When we run from God, God runs after us. After us, He loves us too much to let us stay in our sin. The Bible tells us that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Abandoning us would mean ruin for us, and he loves us too much for that. So he runs after us. And Jesus put it so well in the Gospel of Luke. He said, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open country and goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. When we run from God, God runs after us. God ran after Jonah. Let's look at that. Verse 4, Jonah chapter 1. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each called out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down. Notice how the text says Jonah keeps going down. It's interesting. And he was fast asleep. What a stubborn guy. This storm is happening because of him, and he's shutting it all out. He doesn't care. Verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. By the way, our sin doesn't just affect us. Verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. (laughs) You see, the sailors, they knew that there was something unnatural with this storm. They knew that someone up there must be angry with someone down here. So they said, put your name, write it down, stick it in this hat. They had some chants, some hocus-pocus prayers, don't try this at home. They were pagans after all. And they drew a name out of the hat. And guess who it was? Verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, kind of, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. When we run from God, God runs after us. How does he do that? Well, sometimes he sends a storm. Some of us in this room right now, we're in a storm because of our sin. Now, sometimes it's not because God sent it. Sometimes we've just made a mess of things. I want you to hear me closely. This is really important. Just because you're in a storm doesn't necessarily mean you made a mistake. We'll talk more about that in the next sermon. Sometimes God does send the storm, as in this case. You see, God is like a good parent. He loves us and he disciplines us. He goes after us, and he uses hard circumstances to discipline us. He puts us in time out. He grounds us. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12. It tells us, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines those he loves. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
We see an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul tells us that there were some in the church who were sick, and some of them were dying because of their sin. Now, let's stop for a moment, because that raises some questions. Really, Brian? Would God do that? Acts chapter 5 tells us a story, a very interesting story, about two Christians named Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit and pretended to be more generous than they really were. And what happened to them? The Bible says that God killed them. Man, that just doesn't, it kind of rubs us the wrong way sometimes. Would God really kill a Christian for unrepentant sin? I think that there is a fate that is worse than death, and that's spiritual death. Letting sin take hold in and take over our heart. And God sometimes does things that are drastic to keep that from happening. You might think, well, that's just too drastic, possibly. But let me ask you a question. If you had a a friend, a family member, who was going off into the world of, of drugs, do you think you might do something drastic to save them? You might set them down, have an intervention, do something to to hold them back. If you had a family member who was diagnosed with cancer, would you do something drastic to save them? Would you let a doctor cut them open to get the cancer out? Would you let them be subjected to chemo and radiation? Yes, (laughs) because you love them, because you want to save them. And that's what God does with us. Paul gives us an insight in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, when we are judged by the Lord, we shouldn't think of it as judgment. He says, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I know this just opens up a whole can of worms, and there are tons of questions that could be tacked onto this subject, and I apologize for that. We don't have time to get into all that. If you have questions, I'd love to chat with you afterwards. Or better yet, chat with Pastor Mark. Uh, The point is, God loves us. And when we run from him, he runs after us because he is calling us back to him. I remember receiving a phone call in um, one of the previous churches I had served. And there was an emergency staff meeting called on a Saturday afternoon. Now, you have to realize this has only happened one time in my entire ministry career. (laughs) This can't be good. So we as a staff gather at the church, and we're informed that the senior pastor, we'll call him Pastor Jim, he had been caught in an inappropriate relationship with someone other than his spouse. (laughs) We were devastated. We were floored. I remember sitting in that room trying to wrap our heads around the situation going, what do we do? We want to handle this with truth and grace and right now all of our options are, nothing's a good option at that point. And we begin to talk about how God still loved Pastor Jim and what does that look like? And many of them had served with Pastor Jim for 10, 15 years. And a thought hit me that I shared with the rest of the group. I said, yes, God loves Pastor Jim. In fact, God loved him so much, he allowed him to get caught. 
You see, God loved Pastor Jim too much to let him get stuck in this sin. He had to get him out. He had to do something drastic. He loved the church too much to let them have a shepherd who was wallowing in this area of unrepentant sin. And yes, it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing for him. It was embarrassing for us. It was embarrassing for the church. But how Pastor Jim responded to that situation was key. He responded in honesty, humility. He responded with repentance. Um, He went to counseling. He and his wife both did. And God began to work a miracle. God began to heal him and heal the broken relationship between him and his wife. Today, God is using Pastor Jim in ministry. He is a trophy of God's grace. When we run from God, God runs after us. And that brings us to an interesting point. Sometimes God sends a storm. Sometimes he sends his church. Okay? Uh, We're told um, in the Bible that we are a family. We're connected. We belong to one another. You see, when, when, when one of us celebrates, we all celebrate. When one of us hurts, we all hurt. When one of us is caught in sin, we don't have the right to say, well, that's their problem, and walk away. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Like the good shepherd, we run after the lost sheep, and we do it carefully without condemnation. We do it gently, humbly. And by the way, that's, that's how we did it with Pastor Jim. Now, this does not give us the right to become the Holy Spirit and go around critiquing everyone's behavior. No. It does mean that we have a responsibility to help each other in this Christian journey. We do not have the right to say, not my sin, not my problem. Sometimes whenever we run after the lost sheep, sometimes it means a confrontation. But often, it simply means loving and waiting. They know the truth. Nagging is not going to help them. Pray for them. Love them. Wait for God to bring them to their senses, just like the prodigal son. That's why we should never, ever burn bridges with people, even our enemies. Because when God gets a hold of their heart, he may use you to be the bridge to bring them back into the kingdom. When they get to the point where they realize, I need help, would they call you? Some people, they want to come back, but they just don't know how. Will we be the hands and feet of Jesus to bring them home? Who do you need to call today? Who do you need to encourage? Who do you need to run after? Let's continue our story and bring this to a close. Verse 11. The sailors said to Jonah, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, 
Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, has done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. (laughs) Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. When those men came to Jonah and said, what shall we do to you? Jonah could have said, turn the boat around. We're going back. I'm going to Nineveh. I'm going to obey God. But he didn't. You see, Jonah wasn't going back, and God would not let Jonah go forward. It was a stalemate. And so I believe Jonah, in one last act of defiance, he chose to die rather than obey God. What a stubborn prophet. But our God, who loves us, who runs after us, had one more trick up his sleeve for this prophet. And it's rather humorous. Look at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Get this. The fish is not a punishment. The fish is not a punishment. It is a rescue. Isn't God amazing? Isn't his love extravagant? So unexpected. We're going to leave Jonah right there in the fish for a couple weeks till the next sermon. Musicians, go ahead and make your way up. Meanwhile, would everyone just bow your heads and close your eyes? I want to ask you a few questions as we bring this sermon to a close. Every one of us, we're either running towards God or away from God. Which are you this morning? Aren't you tired of saying no to him? You need to realize that no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, how far you've gone, God will take you back. He loves you. He pursues you. We saw in this passage where he's pursuing the wicked Ninevites. He's pursuing a a rebellious prophet. He's even pursuing these pagan sailors. God's pursuing you. Come home today. Don't wait till tomorrow. I know it's lunchtime. Don't put it off. If today you hear God's voice, respond to him. Listen. God loves you. He runs after you. But he will not force you. You have to make the choice. Stop running. Turn around. Take his hand. Let's pray together. God, in this moment, would you be very honest with us? And help us to be honest with you. And that's all we ask in the name of Jesus. If you would stand up with me, we're going to enter a time of invitation. I'm going to be down front.
Pastor Mark here, if you want us to pray for you, to talk with you, to encourage you, we'd be happy to that. Meanwhile, let's respond by singing these songs about God's love for us. Let's worship together.